Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room with your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell, interviewing the leading doctors in the country to get insights into the best medical treatments available today. Not everyone has access to the best specialists, but you can advocate for yourself and learn the right questions to ask your doctor and the best possible treatment options. Remember, what you know can make a difference in your healthcare. Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. You know, I've come to realize medical doctors like myself are woefully undertrained in areas of oral health. Maybe we just figure we'll leave it to the dentist. You know, however, sometimes patients develop serious medical problems that are due to underlying dental problems. In today's podcast, we'll be sure to give you some specific examples. My guest today is Dr. Michael Gelb. He's actually a nationally renowned dentist here in New York City, and he has an office in White Plains. And I didn't even know he was just a couple of blocks from me in Manhattan. The funny coincidence is that I had been in touch with Dr. Gelb several years ago about a patient I had referred who I was treating. And we're going to talk about that because it's an interesting case. But then again, his name reappeared to me in this great new book by James Nestor called Breath, The New Science of a Lost Art, which I highly recommend to my listeners. It's just a fabulous book about how breathing techniques and how we breathe is so important to our health. But anyway, the author, James Nestor, went from California to visit Dr. Gelb because he heard about his expertise in, in dealing with uh, sleep apnea and TMJ to deal with his own problems and describes it in the book. Dr. Gelb has his own book called GASP, Airway Health, The Hidden Path to Wellness, which goes into detail on many common dental problems that have medical implications. And I just found out about it. I ordered it. So I unfortunately haven't got a chance to read it yet, but I, I'm looking forward to it. So without any further delay, I'd like to welcome Dr. Michael Gelb to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks, Dean. It's great to be here. Good. Okay. So we're going to start out with something interesting. Again, that story I was mentioning about a patient that I was seeing, a lovely young woman. She was in her late 20s. And I was treating her for, she had severe allergies, really, since she was a, a teenager. She had chronic allergic asthma. She also had chronic urticaria or, or hives. And I was able to get to all of those under control. I was treating her with sublingual allergy drops. She was able to go through the spring without problems anymore. She was a very happy person. And one day she was just coming in for a checkup and I could see on her face, she looked pained. I guess that's the best way I could put it. And so I started talking to her and she told me she had a history of some migraines, but now she was developing these blistering migraine headaches. And she had seen a neurologist who uh, had put her on which at the time they were using quite commonly, it was an anti-seizure medication for migraines. And it wasn't really doing very much. And I happen to be fortunate that in all of my training over the years, I, I worked with some really good osteopathic doctors who taught me the importance of the jaw involvement in, in headaches. And sure. you know, again, nothing I ever got in medical school. And I recognized when I examined her and I had her just try to do different jaw movements that she could barely open her mouth. And this was just something like she says, oh, yeah, I had TMJ or, you know, kind of like not, you know, even thinking that there was a relationship. And what I said to her, which I think she's really grateful for, I said to her, you know, we have to find somebody that can evaluate and handle this 
TMJ problem. I said, because you also probably need some manipulation in your mouth and you can't even move your jaw. And so we, I think we probably went on Google together. I said, I'm not sure. I don't really know anybody that does that, you know, surprisingly. I just, again, doctors interactions with dentists, it's like two parallel universes. And we found that you were just a couple of blocks away. And my patient went to see you. She had a, a terrific response. I mean, within a month, she was off all of those medications. And I'm a believer. Ah, great. <laughs> you know? So my first question to you, what causes TMJ? You know, a lot of times you know, people say, oh, we're stressed out. And I, and I know that, you know, that, that's probably a big portion of it. What do you look for when you're evaluating yeah, a patient? Sure. Well, the first thing I'd say is that 80% of our patients are women. What does that mean? They're estrogen receptors in our TM joints. So half our patients after puberty, I've got high school and college students. That's half my practice. Of course, women in their 20s and 30s, you're in the workforce, you're a little bit more stressed. But the other half my patients are as women are getting into perimenopause. So half my patients, Dean, are 49, 50, or 51. And I'll have one day, 49, 49, I mean, like on clockwork. Now, doesn't mean they can't come in at 45. It doesn't mean they don't come in 55. But those are the real big groups. And so estrogen is the number one thing. Number two thing has to be microtrauma, clenching, repetitive strain, whether it's from the neck being forward, whether it's from the clenching. And it's the tonic, it's the tone during the day. It's not just those little episodes where they might bite down a few times. You know it is. You see the same thing. It's a generalized, sympathetic tone. They're a little bit tight all the time. Their neck is tight. Their jaw is tight. And then they have the susceptibility and uh, it just sets it off. So I think those are the two things. Or one of the, you know, the estrogen and the, uh, the trauma. And then guys, it's usually macro trauma. They've gotten into a basketball injury. They've had a motor vehicle accident. That's the other big category. What would you also differentiate, to clarify for myself, like bruxism, you know, I guess what is it, the grinding versus TMJ? Are they very closely related? Is there really a difference between the two? The big thing is when you look at someone's teeth and they're not all worn, if they're worn, that is grinding where they've just ground their lateral grinders. And the big thing in the last five years is we're trying to grind in an effort to open our airway. So I'd say now my evolution was coming from a father who wrote a book, Killing Pain Without Prescription. My dad was a big TMJ guy in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, really popularized TMJ, took it out of the mouth, said dentistry is really not about the teeth, it's really about the TM joint. Mm. Then what I realized was once I could visualize the airway with my comb beam, and once I could do home sleep testing, I realized the reason we have teeth is to support our airway. So now airway trumps TMJ, which trumps the teeth and occlusion. So in other words, there's a theory out there supported by a lot of of research and a lot of different groups that if you have sleep apnea, it increases your clenching and your bruxing. So in other words, if you do adenotonsillectomy in kids, there's a marked reduction in bruxism. So if you open the airway, I was a bedwetter until I was six. The day after I got my tonsils and adenoids out, I stopped wetting the bed. You know, I've heard those stories before. It sounds crazy. It's not. Right? Yeah, the parasomnia, night terrors, bedwetting, enuresis, bedwetting, night terrors, 
wow. uh, nightmares. You open that airway up and you're going to, even narcolepsy, I'm treating a case right now, the narcolepsy is gone after treating the apnea. So apnea kind of trumps some of these other We're, we're going to get to that. And that's going to be our the, the climax of our talk today. But yeah, I, I definitely, that's on my list. And as I said to you, these are medical, these are dental issues, but they become significant medical problems. You know, another thing too, again, an osteopath that I am friendly with and dealt with too, like he, also, he sees also a lot of rheumatological diseases, you know, and, and I bet you would even be able to sometimes probably early on diagnose that in a patient, right? Where they're yeah. having these major joints. I mean, people forget that, the, like you say, the, the TMJ is a, is a joint, like the same way you have your hips or your knees and... That's where the issue is. Because, you know, so many patients who have TMJ, I hear stories, they go to the dentist, oh, I got a bite plane or something, you know, something to stop the grinding. But they're not dealing with the the joint issue, which we're going to get to is so important. Well, yeah, yeah. So the one thing I would add to that that I think is crucially important, I was I was taught by Gary Solomon, who is down at Joint Disease at NYU, the seronegative arthritis, the inflammatory arthritis, whether it's rheumatoid factor negative, they don't have necessarily, but all their tendinous attachments at the nuchal line, all those tendons are inflamed. And so Ashkenazi Jews, certain ethnic types are more prone to get these inflammatory arthritis, spondyloarthritis, enthesopathies. And so I must have referred him seven or 800 patients. Is he a rheumatologist? Is that yeah, he's great. He's a rheumatologist. You know, he's a little heavy on you know, methotrexate, but he's great. So he will manage it medically and I will manage it locally and I'll do, you know, some injections, but he's doing medical management to help us right, out. Right. Well, right. I mean, you know, that's what's it's interesting in some of these cases, there's this local and there's a systemic issue, but the local issue is what, like when I, again, a friend of mine was telling me a story about a patient in the patient who had rheumatoid arthritis, she couldn't open her mouth. I mean, yes. it wasn't, it wasn't a question of like methotrexate is going to help her open her no. mouth. No, you know, you she, need, she needed work, you know, manipulation work. It, you know, it was brutal. Absolutely. So. And so if they've come in and they've had tennis elbow or they've had the patella tendonitis, so if they've had lateral, lateral epicondylitis, if they've had these other itises, itis, itis all over the body, then I kind of know that I'm partially dealing with an itis of the jaw. Yeah. What you mentioned also in some of your materials, because I looked at them extensively too, like the, the patients also that have TMJ, which is interesting, because again, I would think, you know, oh gosh, their jaw hurts, but that's not their primary symptom. Like in the case I was saying, it's headaches, right? And maybe you can mention some of the other things that you see patients present with. That yeah, sure. So a lot of people come in with tinnitus. There's a ringing of the ear. They have a fullness. They go, went on a trip. They got a cold. They went on an airplane. Their ear never really cleared up the way that they they thought it should. They always feel like an echo. They're underwater. We don't get rid of it. But if they go to the ENT and the ENT exam is negative, yeah, the hearing test is normal. Everything's good. We get referred to a lot of the patient because it's musculoskeletal. Could be well, it's good that you, I, I'm so glad you bring this up because I'm glad that you actually hopefully do see the patients because. Yes, I can't tell you how many patients, not even so much the doctors, the patients themselves refer themselves to the ear, to the ENT, because they say, oh, it's my ear, which we all know, and we've, we've, a lot of us experience it, but realizing they don't have much to offer there unless there's wax build up in the ear where they're not thinking that it's coming from the jaw. And tinnitus is medically one of the most difficult things. Yeah. You know, to, there's nothing really to do to help it. I mean, it's awful. Right. So the best ENTs that I know 
once they're they're the ones who really make the good diagnosis. So if they rule out anything really medically, acoustic neuroma, anything serious, they refer the patient to you and I met for musculoskeletal treatment, which helps a percentage of the time. You know, when you say to also make the diagnosis, I just again from my own edification too, is it something where you're playing the hands and touching them, feeling for tenderness? Uh, I, I typically, again, what I was trained from, again, not in my medical training, but from this osteopathic person I worked with, to watch them do jaw movements, like do lateral movements, open up their mouth, watch their tongue movement. Is that the kind of things that you look at? Well, I feel for, first of all, this, this displacements, clicking, popping, and with my fingers in the ears, like the test my dad used to do, pressing forwards, I can feel compression. So I can feel, I feel palpate the inflammation. I feel the disc displacement. And then with regard to myofascial pain, both in the pterygoids inside the mouth, both the lateral pterygoid, the medial pterygoid, I'm palpating all the cervical muscles. So I know that a chiropractor, I know I need cervical treatment. 75% of my patients get cervical treatment with my masculatory, my jaw treatment. Because 75% of the time, there's pain that's coming from the traps, and it's being referred up to the temples, to the frontal region, over the back of the head. So the best thing that I have going for me is I tell them, I can't do it by myself. And well, that's um, a great point, because you know, in medicine, see, I think the biggest thing is one of the points of this whole podcast, honestly, is that why it's so important that doctors talk to each other, work closely with each other the way, unfortunately, they used to. And in today's world, it's become a lot of like tunnel vision because medicine also has become so super specialized that yes. people don't realize you, you have to recognize what is not in your you know, comfort zone. Absolutely. And C1, C2, sphenoid, the yeah. osteopathic, cranial, cranial manipulations of the sphenoid, the temporal mm. bone, the maxilla, and then you guys treating C1, C2 all the way down, it's a big part of what I do. So that's what I think makes us successful is that we're doing, you know, collaborative interdisciplinary care. I, I agree with you. So you just out of curiosity, too, do you recommend chiropractic manipulation versus physical therapy? Which do you have a preference for one or does it depend on the patient? You know, it's very funny. The physical therapists I work with all do manual therapy. They're more like chiropractors. And the that's chiropractors good. Well, that's good, right? Instead of just putting yeah. you know, electrodes right. on. Yes, it's not fake and baked. I mean, they're really going in that they've learned how to mobilize, manipulate, yeah. they're doing cranial. And the best chiropractors are not doing just pure cracking. They're doing more, they're not modalities, but they're doing also manual therapy and different types of lighter and more diagnostics, I'd say, better diagnostics. Do you find also when they get this type of therapy that they're able to, I mean, it's a huge improvement in their range of motion or and relieve their symptoms? You know, it's a, it's a four to one ratio. So if I open 36, I should go uh, nine to the right and nine to the left. Mm -hmm. So someone who opens at an angle, I know that the, they're opening to usually the side of the affected joint. Mm -hmm. There's hypomobility. So I'm feeling for a range of motion of each joint, imaging the joint to see if there's arthritic changes. And so I work with the chiropractor and physical therapist to mobilize that joint that's not moving well and it's, and reestablish the range of motion, 
to a minimum of 36 millimeters of opening up to 54. And then, you know, when we deal with the Ehlers-Danlos and, you know, very difficult when we deal with the hypermobility cases, those are even, I think, much more complicated than the hypomobility cases because of all the interactions with uh, connective tissue disease and neuroplasticity makes it for me much tougher. Do you have patients who, again, I don't know, I was, I was taught this by somebody too, because I had jaw issues back, you know, <laughs> buried in, in pain, uh, doing jaw exercises where you open the mouth, you do side to side, you do tongue, you yeah. know. I do six seconds, one Mississippi, two Mississippi. I hold it in a passive stretch. Mm-hmm. That's like a Roccobato six by six by six. It works, it works great. And then for someone who's too loose, we'll do isometrics, rhythmic stabilization, where we'll go one, two, three. So we'll actually have the muscles take over for the loose ligaments in the joint. So there's some people we want to tighten up, and there are other people that are tight we want to loosen up. So it's based on It's amazing how much stress and tension people hold in their face. My father said something years ago. He said, lips together, teeth apart. And then he, I think he taught it to George Rostin and Terrence McNally did a play on Broadway called Lips Together, Teeth Apart. Yeah, that sounded familiar. <laughs> Remember that? So when I, the number, probably the number one advice I could give to anyone is we're supposed to have, and this goes back to James Nestor's book, we're supposed to breathe through our nose. So there's so many kids that are born like I was, like mouth breathers. Now, there's a lot of reasons why we can't breathe through our nose, but what we should do, and this goes back to yoga and meditation, if I can keep my lips together, my back teeth apart, and put my tongue up to the to the, the palate, the, the roof yeah, of the roof mouth. Of the mouth. Yeah. No one's been taught this in elementary school. No one's been taught this in college. No one that I've never met an adult in Manhattan or any place that understands that knows about lips together, teeth apart. But when you tell them, they say, Oh, that makes a lot of sense. My teeth are only supposed to touch about two thousand to three thousand times a day when I swallow. And just for a millisecond. But in New York, we have our teeth together for five minutes at a time, 10 minutes. Oh, at yeah. Time. Oh. Our teeth are together most of the time. So we're, we got it backwards. Yeah. But I agree with you. That's a big source of tension. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move on a little bit to getting to the sleep apnea and the airway obstruction, which is interesting. And again, what James Nestor talks a lot about in his book, which was terrific. Let's get to this issue. Everybody knows someone in their family who snores. Typically, we hear it's the husbands who snore because you can't remember the husband's not allowed to say to his wife that she snores, but right? I'm sure you hear that all the time. Um, and the options are not great. Usually, it's either sleeping in separate bedrooms or using draconian, or I think draconian CPAP machines. So, what do you see as one of the biggest causes of sleep apnea in your patients? The first thing I'd say is that men are in denial and women speak in code. So the man, man like a good book. <laughs> that's a great title, right? The, right man, yeah. the man never admits that he has a problem. And the woman says, no, nah, I don't really uh, call it. I purr. I don't, you know, I don't really snore. So neither one really wants to admit it. But I mean, the, the best thing I have is something. I, I, here's the thing. My number one question, could you be more refreshed? So if I ask you, are you tired, Dean? You go, no, nah, no. Nah, you know what? I got, I'm not tired. I got a cup of coffee. I get going. Uh, could you be more refreshed? Like everyone, you'd be a liar if you said that you couldn't be more refreshed. So most people would like to feel like they did when they were 16, 20, 21. So you want a little bit more energy. You want to stay awake after dinner, be able to watch a show, a movie, whatever, spend time with your wife. So most people will admit, 
And then if you look at the medical history, do you have a little reflux? Do you have a little bit of high blood pressure? Look at the other things that are going to key you to the fact that they probably do have a sleep disorder, but it's really, you got to understand 85% of these sleep disorders are undiagnosed. Mm. No one's had a sleep study. Everyone's in denial and everyone's exhausted. Everyone's tired. People aren't getting enough sleep. And the people who get enough sleep, it's not good quality sleep. So you and I really have to be detectives. And I love these home sleep testing machines because once the patient realizes that, that they could feel better, they really want to feel better and they want to know how quickly. You know, I saw that mentioned, you know, on your site. And it's funny because I had never even heard about that. I, I always picture when people have to get these sleep studies, they have to go to a place, which is kind of, you know, not yeah. the most comfortable thing in the world, you know, sleep. While they they have you on monitors and all that stuff and not in your own bed. I don't know if that's a real a realistic portrayal of how you sleep. Well, it's probably not. And you have all those EEG electrodes on. You got all the gook in your hair. Yeah. You can't really turn over. You got to sleep on your back. You're being watched by a video camera all night. Yeah, it sounds kind of eerie, right? So it, it listen. It's it provides a good purpose. I'm all for that. But today. A lot of the insurance companies prefer the home sleep test. They've gotten better and better. They're all interpreted by a board-certified sleep MD anyway. And most of these cases are mild to moderate cases. You know, they're not the complex cases. If you have uh, a heart problem, if you need an EKG, yes, go and take a, 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 go and did an overnight study in a, in a sleep lab. If you have restless leg where you need EMGs on your legs because you're thrashing around all night, yeah, yeah. So if you have arrhythmias, if you have heart problems, please get, if you're really obese, if you're overweight, if you've already had cardiac surgery, yes, please get a real sleep study because you'll have the EKG, you'll have the EEG, and you'll have the EMG on the legs, and they'll pick up these diagnoses that you and I may not really pick up. Well, they'll pick up the arrhythmia or they'll confirm the arrhythmia on the polysomnogram. So I only want to treat the ones that have you know, mild to moderate issues. Yes. Will I treat severe cases? Yes. If they prefer not to use the CPAP, I'm fine to treat them. You made me just think of something though, for example, you, know, you watch all of those mattress commercials. Now they have all these yeah. fancy mattresses. And then you see, of course, the commercial where the woman has the elevating the husband's head, you know, from her mattress. Does that make a difference at like the angle of your, of your head? Absolutely. I love it. The sleep number bed. So if the bed can detect that you're snoring, it raises the angle of the bed so that if my jaw is dropping back, remember, sleep apnea is a gravity disease. There is no sleep apnea in outer space because what's happening is as our muscles relax and as we go into REM sleep, our jaw drops back, our tongue drops back, and it blocks the back of our airway. Ah, okay. So as you go into REM sleep, and as you're falling, as the muscles, you know, you have, everything just gives, the tongue drops back, the tissues in the upper airway collapse. And so you have this unstable, collapsible airway, Dean, and it collapses, and that's the beginning of the vibration for snoring. So if you sleep more upright, like someone with reflux, the jaw never, the tissues don't sag back as much Gravity is not as much as a factor. So I recommend all my patients go bed, bath, beyond, get a wedge pillow. That's the first thing. I put two, three, four pillows up and I line it up like at a 45 degree angle. That improves the sleep right away. 
And they were able to like stay on that. You know, some of those websites, they, you know, they don't, you know. Yeah. They, well, then I, that's why I use two or three. Then if I turn on my side, I take it down a notch mm-hmm. and I have to make it so my neck is not contorted. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. So it's not a total wedge. I use like usually combine two or three or four different size pillows so I can get the right uh, neck contour. What about also, it's really interesting what Nestor talks about in the book, Breath. He says about, <laughs> he came up with all these things, but then I found something online like where he was putting tape over his mouth to force him to nasal breathe. But aren't you still getting the obstruction? I mean, you're not making the sound, but aren't you, you, know, aren't you still obstructing your airway? I mean, isn't that? <laughs> well, I, t- I tell you a funny story. Eli Zabar comes to me like 15 years ago. He says, I don't need your fancy device. I just put a piece of tape here, piece of tape here. If you think about it, <laughs> tape prevents the jaw from dropping back. So some people need a little bit more vertical support. Some people need something in between their teeth and some people need more advancement. But one thing that Nestor brings out that Christian Guimanon talked about, it's starting with kids. Probably we don't understand the importance of nasal breathing enough. Yes, that's it's super right. That's, that was, change, that was right? one of the key things. Yeah. That's a key thing. And it changes the autonomic nerve. You know, we always have these people in New York City that are sympathetic, dominant, like a lot of us are, and we're trying to get more parasympathetic into our lives, you know, green leafy vegetables, alkaline, change our diet, do more breathing, do more meditation, do more yoga. And just this nasal breathing by itself, just even walking to work in the morning, just trying to do more nasal breathing is great. You know, it's so funny you say that because, you know, again, for a long time, I've I've done breathing techniques for my patients to help them with gastric reflux. It's amazing how it really helps for that. Obviously with my asthmatic patients, but the funny thing, and I, and I physically demonstrate with the patients, I have them you know, sitting on my exam table, getting a cross-legged position. And I and what I always typically do, just to also show that connection, I have them put their hands on my belly and chest while I'm doing it. And the funny thing is, I always point out how tense I am in my own office. <laughs> you know, working with patients. I said, because I, I tell them, I said, I noticed, you know, I showed them the proper way to do it. I said, but boy, I really even noticed when I'm at home doing some, you know, nasal alternate nostril breathing, I have a lot more movement and feel relaxed than when I'm in the office. But uh, I mean, it's, it's incredible how many patients are chest breathers, you know? Yes. Um, and I try to tell them, you know, when, you know, if you ever see a little infant breathe, you just see their belly go bobbing up and down as they're, you know, getting those full diaphragmatic breaths. And it has very significant importance as he talks about in the book, you know, again, like as you're talking about too, getting that parasympathetic system, that part of our nervous system that tries to keep us in equilibrium versus the fight or flight situation. Yeah, it's profound. It's amazing. It's pretty simple once we really we realize what to do. You think the tape thing, that's... You know, yeah, it's legit. That's it, legit. It's, well, you know what? All my doctors, all my marathon runners, all the guys that are into performance, my bike ride, the guys that are really competitive, yeah. that want to do better, all my athletes, all my doctors are taping at night. Yeah, they're doing it at night now. They're also doing it. Like, I was running my bike the other day. I was trying it. It wasn't that hard, but it felt a little strange. Like, is it, it's obviously even good to do while you're riding, like, say, a bike. I don't know if you can do it while you're running. but uh, I find it while running, everyone, if you need more breath, you know, the guys who are most successful that have really trained for years can breathe through their nose at yeah. high effort. Yeah. But most people are going to revert to some mouth breathing at, yeah. at high effort. Yeah. You know, I have obviously the issue with my patients seeing patients with allergic rhinitis that I really feel for them because I unfortunately don't have allergies, but when I would get a bad cold, I couldn't breathe through my nose at all. And I just felt it threw up my whole rhythm, my energy. 
And what I would typically, that's why I'll typically be aggressive with some nasal sprays with patients because you got to get the nose open. You got to get, if it's due to the tissue itself, if that's swollen, if you don't reduce that, then it's going to be impossible to breathe through your nose. And, right. and that I couldn't understand in the early days of my practice why, <laughs> I mean, I understood about sneezing and runny nose, but when people would say to me, I feel awful. That's what, you know, then why they used to come for treatments back in the day, did shots. Now I did drops. I'm like, why would somebody come every week for shots? This has got to be really bad, you know? And you realize when you can't breathe through your nose, it throws off so many things. And I've even heard this from people that have suffered from depression. But they yeah. told me they're, they're, one of their complaints was, go, doc, my breathing's off. I think, oh, maybe because you're anxious, you know? And, and I realized, no, their breathing was off. I mean, it's... Well, if you want to simulate anxiety for someone who doesn't feel no amygdala, if you will choke, if you will cut someone's breathing off, that's probably the most relevant way to induce anxiety. So just figure it, you're being strangled hundreds of times a night. But if someone threatens your airway, forget, okay, you're going to fast for a day. That's bad. But if you can't breathe for more than two minutes or someone reduces your breathing by 20%, 30%, they're really threatening your safe place. They're threatening your life. And so I've really cut panic attacks and anxiety by as much as 50% in two weeks, just by, like you said, opening the airway. I give everyone either mute nasal stents. I give them for free. I give them as a sample. They put them in their nose and it does oh, a, a, coddle, a coddle maneuver. I would have to say, you know, you just, you just remind me, like, you know, again, people saw this with all the athletes, especially the, the football players, those nasal strips work a little right. bit or? No, work a lot. They so, work a lot. They just take your skin off of your nose. But so that's why that's why I give the ones that go inside the nose, and I give them out to everybody. Thirty percent of the people I give them to can never sleep without them again. It, it's it's life. Are they very uncomfortable? Or are they they're, they're not. They're a little bit, but it also proves the concept that they need to see you either for allergic rhinitis or they yeah. need to see it. They need to see an ENT that really yeah, knows what they're doing. Deviated yeah. septum turbinates. Right. But they, they realize, wow, that's life altering. So then that's when we get in another subject is when we start expanding the palates. Yeah. Like Nestor talks about that in his book. And uh, I've got some great morph sites. Well, yeah, I wanted to, actually, it's a good transition. I wanted to ask you about that. Now, so Nestor says in his book, which makes sense, but it seems pretty remarkable that essentially the space in our mouth has gotten smaller because of softer food and yeah yeah but, but, but what is it the, the jaw so think about it this way if you look back at the neanderthal skull we go to smithsonian institute we get a hundred skulls if you look at that neanderthal or or early homo sapien face very big right broad projecting snout what's happened as our brains gotten bigger and as we become on, and this is Lieberman up at Harvard, as we became bipedal, our cervical spine came forward and our mid face has been pushed back. We've lost our snout. So our, our jaw and our mid face got tucked under this large brain. And we have, we're the only mammal that has a flexible larynx and pharynx so we can speak. Other mammals don't have speech. Right. So when our epiglottis descended, Every other mammal has a lock between the epiglottis and the soft palate, so the tongue can't go in the back of the throat. At six months of age, 
Our epiglottis, the thing that prevents the food from going to the lungs, our epiglottis descends. We have an inch and a half to two inches of open area in there. We're the only mammal who can choke to death, Mm. like in our sleep, because we have that vulnerable area. So as the mid-face came back and the frame and magnum came forward, this is a really big Achilles heel for Homo sapiens. And in the last 400 years with the advent of after fire, but after the industrial revolution, this industrialized diet, high sugar, more soft foods, preservatives, plastics, how about pollutants, how about pesticides after World War II? So the net result, we no longer have room for all 32 teeth. Think about the kids. A hundred years ago, they had room for all 32 teeth. Now the kids have to go see an oral surgeon. There's not room in the bone. The bone has literally gotten smaller and smaller and smaller. Chimpanzees, Dean, have room for 44 teeth. We don't have room anymore for even 28 teeth. So we have 32 teeth. We've got to get four wisdom teeth taken out because they're most often impacted. That was not the case 400 years ago. You know, one of the things you brought up too, I someone to ask this because, you know, we hear about this too, like with an elderly person, it seems like they're also, they're more prone to choking. And is, is that due to, again, their gag reflex is not as good anymore? Or is that has to do with the, the muscle tone or something around what you were just I think saying? it's muscle tone. But by the way, the reason that there's so much flonase, our noses have gotten narrower, our sinuses, our mid-face is pushed in. So we have small sinuses. They didn't have sinus issues. Well, they didn't have allergies. Yeah, people always wonder, you know, I, I read this somewhere that people always wonder, what are the purposes of the sinuses? But it was for phonation, right? It was for speech. I think it's for phonation. And we had these big, we had these big sinuses. They could vibrate. And now everyone has sinus disease. Yeah. Everyone's got stuffed up noses. Look it's at just, It's just a tough area. It's such a small area that I, I always make the analogy. It's like small little lakes. You know, that's why when they, they fill up and they don't drain properly, patients run into problems. Right. Know? But it's much more endemic and prevalent today than it was even 100 or 200 years ago. And yeah. it's, it's probably getting worse. That's why there's a movement to reverse that and to make us have a face more like a paleo face. Mm. So what are you doing to help patients that have the sleep apnea? I was really interested in your diagnostics. You know, maybe you can mention a few of the studies that you do on patients. Sure. So, I mean, the number one thing is we can actually take an image of your airway. You know, a picture's worth a thousand words at least. I take a picture. I don't have to be very smart. If I measure the size of your airway behind your tongue, so if someone has a big tongue, you got to understand, like you said before, our mouths have gotten smaller and smaller and smaller, but our tongues are getting bigger. We're gaining weight. I got this petite women. They're doing... uh, Peloton, they're fit, but they have a big tongue and they're exhausted all the time. They're <laughs> bruxing every night. They have irritable bowel. Okay, I have to answer this question. <laughs> Just, uh, how do you judge a big tongue? I mean, I, I, you know, I know I've seen some from certain medical diseases, but if you have scalloping on the side uh, of your tongue, oh, it means you're cutting. Oh, okay. There's not, it, and oh, it, that's interesting. That's a, again, I'm, that's a tip for me because, you know, sometimes I'll look at somebody and say, oh, you know, they have a big tongue or, for that small mouth, but. You know what it is? You know what it is? The palate and the jaws have to be wide enough to fit the tongue. So you ask the orthodontist, how wide does the palate have to be? Wide enough to fit the tongue. And so a lot of times we have to look in an anterior posterior. We have to look in a uh, transverse process. 
and we look at sagittal. So we do sagittally this way. We look at all three dimensions on our cone beam. Hmm. The distance from molar to molar should be 38 to 42. Dean, it's hardly ever 30. It's usually 30. It's 26. I see people that have mouths. These are adults. They have mouths that look like a child. Why? Thumb sucking. The orthodontist took out teeth. Don't even get me going on that because we've been making airways smaller in dentistry for the last hundred years. So it's diagnostics. It's a huge part. So we do the sleep study. We do the exam. We look inside the mouth. And really, you need the, uh, the sleep study, which is then diagnosed by a physician, to officially diagnose airway resistance, snoring, sleep apnea, to really put an official medical diagnosis on it. We need to get the blessing and the diagnosis and the treatment plan from the MD. Let's ask you too, this is probably one of the most basic things dentists do, which doctors do not focus on at all. Do you look at somebody's or ask them to smile? Is that you know, tell you about their jaw and their airway or is that too simple? No, no, that's brilliant. So a lot of people, this is what Larry Rosenthal did. When you smile, you want to be like Julia Roberts. You want to be able yeah. to see from first molar to first molar because most people's smile is too narrow. Right. And that's why laminates got big. That's why Invisalign is so big today. But Invisalign misses the point because they're emphasizing alignment. They're not emphasizing airway and TMJ. So remember, airway always trumps everything else. Your smile and the width of your palate, the height of your palate. So remember, if your palate is high and narrow, it's like a cathedral ceiling on a house on the island or in Alpine. It's taking up too much of the nasal real estate. And I say something, one of my best lines is, if you have a nose that's very narrow, it's like a 500 square foot apartment in the village. You could, take out, you could take out all the furniture. It's still you're in a 500-square-foot apartment. <laughs> what we're trying to do today, treatment-wise, we're trying to grow the airway. So the next, this is the next phase. This is what people are doing now. They're doing these expansion appliances, even in adults, that are growing, making room for the tongue. Because if I do nasal surgery, you and I both know half the time, Patient says to us, you know, doc, I still can't breathe. I know, it's it's disappointing. So if you expand the palate, we're putting screws even now in the palate. And we're widening and the nose is opening, Dean. We're getting that 500 square foot nose into an 1,000 square foot nose internally. It's not changing the way it looks on the outside. You know, it's interesting because I know you see a lot of, like sort of I do too, some actors and actresses. Do they just naturally have some have very large mouths or do they, are they going for the procedures that are, you know, so they can see, people can see their teeth and their smile, you know, it just, it seems like also so many of people on television, it's just, besides having good dental work. <laughs> I think they've had work done, but a lot of my actors, the, the well-known ones really don't want to touch their look. They don't want to change that signature look that they have if they're already established. Right. So I, I can't even go near, I don't even suggest. And then the famous singers, again, a lot of them are really afraid for us really to change uh, anything about their phonetics. But I think a lot already have had it done. Mm. For the treatment of the sleep apnea, I mean, obviously there's a couple of things, you know, with the CPAP. Is that what you something you go to or you do it in conjunction with the oral appliance? And or- That's my thing. So, so what I do is anyone who has a score over 30 events per hour or anyone who is obese, anyone who has real serious medical conditions, I recommend CPAP. So we do a measurement. We get the score back from the home sleep test. If it's a mild case, most people are going to prefer to do the oral device. 
you know, it's overkill to do the CPAP. If you're somewhere, so mild would be like five to 15 events per hour where you stop breathing. 15 to 30, you're moderate. And in there, you really have a choice. It's whatever the patient prefers and what the physician that you're working with prefers. I tend to go with an oral device or a combination of therapy. Most people that are younger, they're going to travel. They'd rather put the device in the pocket than, than do CPAP. But a lot of my friends, you got to understand, in the United States, we're CPAP dominant because that's been the ResMed and Philips. That's been like, we're very pharmacologically pharma-oriented right. in the U.S. Right. Yeah. We're very... In Europe, it's more 50% devices, uh, appliances, oral devices, 50% CPAP. In the U.S., we're kind of CPAP crazy because that's the mindset of these 5,000 sleep physicians who say oral appliances don't work. So I don't, I don't say CPAP doesn't work. CPAP does work, but the compliance rate's only 30%. Sounds horrible. And when I talk to people, like, it's amazing when I find anybody who really does it. Because, you know, again, we talk about almost like having something over your airway which you know can provoke anxiety. You have Correct. to be a very unanxious person to be able to wear that in uh, right. all night long. Right. So if you only use something, it's 100% effective. You only use it 30% of the time. That's 30. If you have something like our, our thing is 80, 75, 70 to 8 percent, but you're going to use it 80% of the time. Eight times eight to 64. 30, 30 times uh, it's right. 30. No, that's just logical. You know, it's like when I used to tell fellow doctors, you know, I, I've been doing sublingual allergy drops for 20 years. I started out doing allergy injections and I didn't like it because they had dangerous reactions and, you know, there would have been some deaths. And I was fortunate enough to, over 20 years ago to learn about the sublingual drops and it had excellent success and so easy patients do it at home. But the thing is, when I was pointing to the studies, again, like what you're just saying, like with the allergy shots, I mean, even if they were effective, you know, only about 30% of the people completed ever completed the full course because they had to go every week for a year, two years. And with the drops, I'm finding over 90% of the people are compliant. So you got to be logical and say, what really makes sense? What's getting the job done? And we came up with one for women that we cut down. We made like a third the size. Oh, really? Mini? <laughs> I had to make, I call it the hers originally. Now they call it the select, but I cut it down, <laughs> like cut it down, cut it down. Why? Because I had all these women with airway resistance. They didn't have sleep apnea. They didn't have any oxygen problems, but their brain kept waking up all night. You know the type. The brain just doesn't stay down in deep sleep. They try Benadryl. They try all these over-the-counter oh, things. Gosh, yeah. They can't stay down. So they have a condition called upper airway resistance syndrome. They're fatigued. They have all these functional syndromes. They've got TMJ syndrome, bruxism, fibromyalgia, irritable bowel, and anxiety, and they're lightheaded. They have low blood pressure, not high blood pressure. So these women need opened up airways and they need, that gets them typically down. They're not easy because they're sympathetically dominant. And so that's a class of people to talk about. So these women need very, very tiny appliances that don't take up a lot of space that are that's, easy that's to wear. That's a great point. It, it, it made me think of something too, Josh. I can't imagine how many patients of yours come to you on Ambien and then you're able to get them off of it, right? Because that, what's the first thing patients want when they can't sleep? They want to sleep, obviously. Ambien, Lunesta, Ambien right. Benadryl, you know? Right. Right. And hey, how many are on clonopin? How many are on short acting like a Xanax, which is awful for sleep apnea because it relaxes the muscle? The more relaxed the muscle is, the more it's going to uh, clog the airway, collapse. Right. So you got to get people off of these medications and really on to. And that's why we really try to make the airway bigger 
you know, the sleep, the CPAP blows uh, air into a narrow airway. We're not really trying to develop that airway. That's the new area in dentistry. Mm. So by expanding the palate, whether it's through slow, like when we were in school, they told you after puberty, you can't, it's remember the sutures are fixed. Right. Right. That's right. And which I, I learned later on it's not true. Right. It's, and now with the osteopaths, we can very slowly and sometimes we need a little surgical help. We can now slowly expand that palate and it opens up the nose. Amazing. In yeah, many cases. Amazing. Yeah. Well, this has been really incredible. Is there any, anything else you want to share? You know, the, the, the other thing I was going to bring up is that uh, memory. We're doing a lot with reversing Alzheimer's. I think we have to oh talk my about, because wow. my father has, my father's 95. He has Alzheimer's dementia. I think if we can, part of it, and this is P. gingivalis, remember we were talking about the bacteria in the mouth. Part of the reasons I went back to measuring the bacteria in the mouth was that the P. gingivaluses, the, the high-risk pathogens are not only associated with cardiovascular disease and the endothelium and like the leaky gut. So these things escape, they go into the bloodstream, they go into the arteries throughout the body and they lead to cardiovascular disease, stroke, and diabetes. So the physicians that I work with say, Michael, I have to work with a dentist that realizes this in order to control, prevent cardiovascular disease. Mm. And then Dale Bredesen and Mark Hyman oh, yeah, and Paul Yeah, I think he's done great work. I'm sorry, yeah. What well, is inflammation is the driver of Alzheimer's. So there's no drug that treats Alzheimer's. So opening the airway, having a good opening the airway is the best way that I know to cut down systemic inflammation. So yeah, I, yeah. that's a primary point. So if you've got a relative that is, if you're losing your memory, it's not only enough, change your diet, look at stuff, the recode right. protocol of Bredesen, but don't ignore sleep, both getting enough sleep and the quality of the sleep. Are you getting enough oxygen and are you getting enough deep non-REM sleep? Yeah, no. That's predictive. That is, those are great points. Uh, I am so glad we did this podcast together today. Me too, I, a lot I, of fun. I learned so much. And that's what I, I always tell people. I said, I, I call it the smartest doctor in the room because I love interviewing top people. And maybe one day I'll be the smartest doctor in the room. But you shared so many insightful Thank things. You. And as I mentioned, again, I'll say it again too. James Nestor book on breath is great. And as I said, I can't wait to read your book, Gasp, because I, I, saw, the, I saw the table of contents online. And I said, wow, this is, this is packed with a lot of important information, and I hope our listeners truly appreciate this. If they have any questions, they can contact me uh, on my Facebook or Instagram at Dean Mitchell MD. And really enjoyed the podcast. Thanks. For Thank you. Up. Thanks a lot, Dean. I All appreciate right. it. It's yeah. been fun. Thank you for listening to the smartest doctor in the room with host Dr. Dean Mitchell. You can continue this conversation on Instagram at Dean Mitchell MD, Facebook at Mitchell Medical Group, or at DeanMitchellMD.com.